we ask in this moment. Singing and declaring the praises of the mighty name of Jesus. That not one person, woman, man, child, will leave this space the same because they have encountered the beautiful, mighty name of Jesus. This is our ask. This is our want. Change hearts and minds to never be the same after this moment. may be seated. A year ago on Easter, we were in quarantine. And I remember having communion in the Upper Youth Center with six people. Uh, the band and a couple of the helpers. And it's an amazing thing to be back on what is represented in this weekend and what it means for us as followers of Jesus. So welcome to Warehouse Community. I have a question for you, and it's something for, that's going to open up um, possible PTSD or trauma in your life. Do you remember the first time that you were learning how to ride a bike? You do? Anybody here remember who taught you how to ride a bike? There's a lot of ashamed people in this room because you're not raising your hand. It was not a wonderful moment, was it, for some of you? I can guarantee you that there's probably maybe one or two of you that walked away unscathed, but for the rest of you, there was road rash, there was concussions, there was broken body parts, there, there was whatever happened, you've got your foot caught in the spokes. For me, it was on top of a, a Florida hill, which isn't an impressive hill, by the way, and I didn't have a shirt on. I didn't have shoes on, just had my shorts, and I was told to go. Go. And I went. And I went, and I went fast. I was fast. Until, if you've ever seen this before, in uh, somebody riding a skateboard or somebody riding a bike, a little kid, a little out of control, you get that front wheel wobble. Have you ever experienced this or seen this? And I started doing that front wheel wobble. And the next thing I remember is waking up on the side of the road, looking at my elbow, and I had dirt and pebbles inside my skin. I was missing skin on my left side. I had um, all of the toe, skin on my toes on my right foot all gone. And that was my experience of learning how to ride a bike. Oh, and by the way, we didn't have helmets in, in, in my generation, and, but we weren't bubble-wrapped either by our moms. Uh, we didn't have elbow pads or knee pads. It was literally top of a hill, go. So I, I remember these days. 
And so I remembered that when my son and I had the privilege to help a precious little friend of ours named Victoria Fulbright on how to ride a bike. It was time for those training wheels to come off, and this was in March of 2019. And I have a little short video I want you to see of before the lessons started. So take a look at this real quick. So V, what are you going to learn today? How to ride my bike without training wheels. And who are your teachers? <laughs> and this weird little guy? <laughs> yeah, you're going to do awesome, aren't you? All right, we're going to... She was a little nervous, by the way. If you know V, that was a little bit of a nervous giggle. And uh, so I made a mistake, big mistake. Parents don't ever make this mistake when you're teaching your kids how to do something. I bribed her. And I told her, I said, V, you ride your bike today. Without me touching the bike, you got no training wheels. We're going to go to Publix, and we're going to get your favorite gallon of ice cream, and we're going to eat it all today, all in one sitting. And she's like, okay. She was so excited about that. It kind of motivated her, right? And we only had about a 30-minute window, right? So they had to go somewhere. We had to go somewhere. So we only had a 30-minute window to teach Precious V how to ride her bike. So the mistake, bribing. So every three to five minutes, you know, she would stop. You remember this, Noah? She would stop, and she'd say, Pastor Mark, can we just go get ice cream? And I'm like, V, no, not yet. You're almost there. And she would sort of lean her weight this way, and we'd have to pick her up. We'd lean her weight this way, had to pick her up. And finally, she got centered. And I'm like, V, you're doing so good. And I was holding on to her seat post, and you had to run at a weird angle like this all the way through, and your back is killing you. And you're like, you just have to ride to know. You got it. She's like, don't let go of my seat. I said, V, then you won't ride by yourself. I've got to let go of your seat. She said, don't let go of my seat. I don't want to be scratched. I said, V, you're not going to get, well, you might get scratched, but you ride horses, and those things are more dangerous than your bicycle. So you can do this. And she said, three to five minutes later, Pastor Mark, can we just go get ice cream? It's like, V, listen, I'm going to sweeten the deal. I'm going to bring Noah in, he, and, and you only have to ride without me touching your bicycle 10 to 15 yards, and we're going to get that gallon of ice cream. I promise. And so we tried that. 15 yards, and she kept on putting her feet down. Every time I would let it go, she'd put her feet down and stop. And so I was like, V, you're not going, if we just go get ice cream and we skip this part, you're just not going to be satisfied. It's not just, it's not going to be a fulfilling experience if you don't reach your goal. And she says, uh, Pastor Mark, I think I'll be really satisfied <laughs> if I just go get ice cream. So that's how the lessons went. And so uh, this, earlier this week, I texted her mom for permission to share this story. And later that afternoon, I got this video. So take a look. Hi, Pastor Mark. So the funny thing is right now I'm riding my bike and we just got ice cream. 
So, yes, you can share my story. Te quiero mucho. That means I miss you so much. And I hope I hope to see you soon. Bye. Ooh. I'll give you a little bit teary. So she's riding her bike. I didn't teach her. No one I can't get credit for that. But she's riding her bike to the ice cream store. Did you hear that? I rode my bike to the ice cream store. So this story of V wanting ice cream before learning how to ride her bike reminds me of a little thing that we do as Christians when it comes to our relationship and following Jesus. See, as Christians, it's sometimes we do whatever it takes to avoid this tough stuff of Christianity, the pain and the suffering. And we want the benefits of the ice cream of Christianity, the, the joy, the peace, the love, mercy, and, and the grace part of our walk with God, but we want to skip sometimes the suffering and the pain that sometimes it brings as you follow God. And just to be clear, I, I'm not one saying, hey, go find suffering, because I don't want to look for it. I don't embrace it well. I don't handle it really well when it comes. But in the midst of that darkness of suffering, of pain that I go through, and that I have gone through in the history of my short little life, that is the place that I experience some of the most deepest, intimate presence of Jesus like no other in that space. But we avoid it. You know, Jesus, three different times in the Gospels that we see was recorded, three different times he told his disciples what was going to happen to him. He predicted his death three different times. So they knew it was coming. And Jesus in Luke chapter 9 is talking to his disciples, and he's predicting his death again. He's telling them about it. I want you to look at these words in Luke chapter 9. And it says this, The Son of Man must suffer. Must suffer. It's inevitable that the Son of Man must suffer. Jesus, our example, sharing with his disciples, it's going to happen. Suffering is coming. And then he explains a little farther. Many things, he's going to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. Must again. He must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. Don't you think it would have been a lot easier for, for Jesus to skip the Friday event and just jump to the resurrection? To skip the, the betrayal, the trials, illegal trials, by the way, the getting spat on the face, the torture before the ultimate torture, it would have been a lot easier for him to skip that and just jump to the resurrection. It's not what he chose. 
Death is the door we have to walk through before we experience resurrection. Before you can experience Christ's resurrection power and new life, a certain death must occur. Resurrection only happens to dead people. The living don't need to be resurrected. It says that in the Bible over and over again. In order to be resurrected, a death must happen. I want you to be thinking about what death must happen. Pastor Barb, not knowing about any of my sermon, mentioned that up here. A death must occur. So, Jesus continues and starts speaking to his disciples about a certain expectation. If you want to be my follower, there is a certain expectation. If you want to be my disciple, Jesus says there's a certain expectation. And there's so many of us that say, oh, we can just come to Jesus and he accepts us right where we are. And that is all true. But he calls us to something great He calls us to something that is not easy. And so listen to this. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, this is him speaking to all of us. Here in history, he's talking to his disciples. But listen to this. Luke chapter 9, he continues. He predicted his death, talked about his suffering and death and resurrection. Then he looks at his disciples. Next verse, Luke 9, verse 23. Then he said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple. Again, do you want to be Jesus' disciple? Do you want to be a follower of Jesus? Because if you do, this is the expectation. This is the expectation that he calls us all to rise to. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross daily. Take up that torture device daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. So a death must occur and the cross is on your back. You're carrying the cross and you're carrying it daily. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Is following Jesus sound easy? Abandon anything that brings self-reliance. Understand me, we as humans are control freaks over our lives. We are control freaks. That's why we want to be independent, self-reliant. We don't want to have to depend on others. And that bleeds over into our Christianity sometimes. So abandon anything that brings self-reliance. Do you rely on your occupation? Do you rely on certain friendships? Do you rely on your career path that you're going on? Abandon anything for self-reliance. The other thing is, is abandon comfort that leads to spiritual complacency. Abandon any comfort that leads to spiritual complacency, which is the greatest, deadliest disease of Western Christianity. 
is spiritual complacency. We want to jump straight to the ice cream of Christianity in order to avoid the discomfort of carrying the cross of Jesus. Because carrying the cross is not easy. He carries it with us. But that's the call. I must embrace the cross, the absolute and total denial of yourself. That's what that means. Before I can taste the life he offers in the resurrection. The famous theologian back in World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his most famous quote is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ called his disciples, abandon everything. Everything that you know, now you will have to be 100% dependent on me. Leave it all and come follow me. A death must occur that brings full dependence upon Jesus Christ. A death must occur. Galatians chapter 2. Listen to this. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. A death happened, right? I no longer live. But what? Christ now lives in me. A death must occur. A certain death must take place in your life in order to experience the full measure and the power of the new life of what the resurrection hope brings. Romans says it a different way. And um, I don't know, it's kind of interesting to find out. How many of you, raise your hand and be proud about it. It's only the most important decision you ever made in your life. How many of you in this room have ever been baptized before? Been baptized? There's a lot of people of you have been baptized. Now, those of you who have not been baptized, I want you to listen to this. Because this is the most important event in the history of your life. It is more important than your marriage. It is the day that you choose publicly to follow Jesus. And there is this symbolic, beautiful reflection of what Paul says that baptism symbolizes. And he starts to express that in Romans chapter 6. He says this, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Symbolism going up under the water. Can you breathe under the water? Mm-mm. No, you, if, I, if a pastor holds you under there too long, that's going to bring a lot of nightmares. You're not going to be able to hold your breath. So bring under the water. That's the death part. And he says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A death must occur before you experience the resurrection 
new life that He gives to you. One of the best books that I have ever read on pain and suffering, and it was four years ago that I read this. It's a, by a Presbyterian pastor named Timothy Keller, and he wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I want you to listen to this quote or follow along. Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access. He was bound and nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so that we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. Amen? He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond. And the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. What is your death to life story? Maybe some of you are in the process of dying of something. But what is your death to life story? What do you have to die to in order for you to experience the fullness of the resurrection power of the new life that is waiting for you after you walk through that door of death? So I want to introduce a friend of mine that's going to share a movie trailer version of her death to life story. She's a friend of all of ours. Her name is Joyce. And uh, if you want to hear the full version, see the full version, hear it, there is an amazing podcast called Death to Life. She shares her story there. It's an hour and 40-something minutes. And it's an incredible story of death to life. And I have asked her to close, conclude this part with the story of her death to life. Morning, y'all. Good afternoon. Um, Full disclosure, I may cry, which is that you're probably saying, duh. I just saw you crying five minutes ago. Um, it's just Easter for me is like my birthday and my anniversary and Christmas all rolled up into one. So that is what's going on in my heart and my mind right now. Um, I have lived most of my life believing that I have something to prove. Every movement, every behavior calculated and assessed to make sure I can answer the question, what will they think about me? What will they think about this? I thought that I would only be worthy of being known and loved, worthy of being seen as good, only be enough, desired, chosen, if I proved it, if I earned it. And I tried to prove and earn this in many ways with my family and my friends, 
strangers on the internet with guys as I hopped from relationship to relationship and gave of myself and gave of my body because I thought it meant that if they affirmed me, I was loved. I had proven it. And here's the thing, I tried to earn and prove that same worth with God because I thought that if I did the right things, I wouldn't miss out on heaven and he would find me pleasing. It was a very performance-based gospel. It was salvation by devotion, if you will. It was salvation by the law and by the rules. I was not living by faith. Perfectionism held me completely hostage. And here's the thing, y'all. Perfectionism is a lie. And that lie will manifest itself in your life because you only act out based on your identity that you believe about yourself. I always say identity breeds function. So you're going to move based on what you believe about yourself. And I believed I needed to earn and prove. So I walked it out. But walking those lies out every day bred a lot of things in me. Among them, tons of anxiety, usually performance-based, getting up to sing academically, being in a leadership position. I wanted to do it because I wanted to be seen as good, but I was terrified of what would happen if something went wrong. And that anxiety followed me all the way into adulthood. It did not disappear because I matured out of it. It, it held me bound. I experienced a lot of shame. I don't know if anyone here identifies or has in the past as a perfectionist, but it's really easy for a perfectionist to hide and to experience shame when you've made a mistake. I also experienced a lot of fear and aversion to taking risks because I could not deal with the possible criticism of doing something I wasn't already good at. It made me withdraw socially. It made me procrastinate. I developed disordered eating habits. And again, I hopped from relationship to relationship in an effort to just feel like I was earning my spot, earning my space. And here's the thing. When you let lies take root deeply in your life, they'll ruin everything. And at the time, I didn't know the truth that I could speak over it loudly. I had read it in the Bible, but it had never landed for me. And so as I'm walking out these lies as a woman who believes that that's our identity, it all culminated into me making the worst decision of my life. I did the most terrible thing where I lived at the expense of someone else and hurt the people I loved the most and that were closest to me in my life, hurt them the most. And after that happened, I spiraled into the deepest, darkest pits of shame and guilt, completely overwhelmed that that would be where I would live forever. And I cry now because the miracle that is my life, you have no idea what Jesus pulled me out of. And he's that good, I promise you, he's that good. And I just thought forever I would be this marked woman this damaged woman, I would forever identify with my sin. I would forever identify myself as a sinner. And that was just the way I would have to live until Jesus came back again. And in that deep, dark pit of despair, Jesus met me there. And he didn't meet me with condemnation because there is no condemnation for me. And there is no condemnation for you. It doesn't matter what you've done. He met me there and he looked at me and he said, daughter, of God, are you ready now? Are you ready to hear what the Father thinks of you? Are you ready to hear what the cross accomplished for you? Are you ready to hear that at the cross while I was there dying, I was thinking of you, Joyce, by name? 
And I leaned into that for the first time in my life, and I said yes. And he started to speak the most beautiful things to me. One, he told me, I am holy and righteous and blameless and perfected in love. How can I aim to be a perfectionist if I've already been perfected, made complete, full, lacking no good thing? And he told me I'm deeply known and I'm deeply loved and I'm completely forgiven, not after or when I ask for forgiveness or repent or confess, forgiven at the cross, because that's how we live. That's our default setting, always living forgiven. And he told me I was fully pleasing to him right there in that moment, not when I prove that I won't fall and make a mistake again. And he told me he chose me. He said, you're mine. And all those years I spent seeking that significance through affirmation and affection from other people, they all lost their ability to trigger those behaviors in me. Because the one who mattered, finally, I heard from him and I believed him and I trusted him. He told me he wanted no space between us. The amount of intimacy that Jesus wanted with me caused him to die on a cross so that he could tear that veil and there would be no separation between us ever again. That's how hard he chose me. That is the level of intimacy he wants to have with you. That is how obsessed he is with me and with you. And he told me that shame and guilt and condemnation are not from my father. He would never use those against me. Why? Because shame is this belief that you are the things that you do. God isn't even counting your sins against you anymore. There's no way he's using them to figure out or to decide if you're pleasing to him. Guilt is a subconscious understanding that you haven't been forgiven, and that's a lie. You have. And condemnation is this idea that your life is worthy of judgment, and it's not. Jesus took care of that. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8, y'all. It's true. It's true about you. So I consented to the Holy Spirit and all these good things started to happen. I stopped trying to pay off a debt and started to receive and believe the things that have already been done for me and given to me for free. So I received my forgiveness. I received my redemption. I received reconciliation. I received my righteousness in Christ Jesus and this new and transformed heart and mind through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's me now. That's what he'd been trying to communicate with me my entire life. You don't need those other things. I accomplished that for you. Because here's the thing, guys. I want you to live in that space. Something else that Jesus told me was that I was free from sin. That sin had been pulled out of me, cut out of me. That I no longer had to identify myself with my sin or even as a sinner. It was done and it was gone. And I want you to live in that space. But before you can, you have to understand this one thing. We've been talking about it all morning. And I don't want to oversell it, but it will absolutely change you for the rest of your life. But it's this one thing that we find in 2 Timothy 2.11. This is the faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Here's the thing. If you don't know that you've died, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to die through your works and through your performance. And it's miserable laying there, living there. Because you'll be in one hand trying to walk in this newness of life that Christ Jesus has given you, and then in the other hand trying to reform the old you that you inherited from Adam. You could try to live in both spaces, trying to believe and trust that you've been made new, but then also still believing that you have to earn your right standing with God. You could try and live there, but it's miserable. It's a double life. It's a roller coaster. The cure for this is not to try harder. 
And the cure for this is not to follow these 10 steps to being a better person. The cure for this is to believe the revelation that the old you was crucified with Christ. He or she no longer lives, but Christ lives in you. That happened to you. And you didn't have to work for it. The old you is who you were before you met Jesus. But when you met Jesus, something happened in you. The old you needed to be reformed. He was the worst. But no level of reformation could have done what Jesus did at the cross for you. The only thing that could have done it is that sacrifice. Your worth settled once and for all at the cross. Paul puts it really well in Romans 6.6. 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Look at his choice of words. Was. Past tense. It happened to you. Your old self is dead and gone. Isn't that liberating? So good. Do you want to live, like really live in Jesus right now? Just let this truth take the deepest root in your heart right now. And that is what Pastor Mark already read, but I'm going to read it again because it's great. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Guys, agree with God. Trust this. Believe that he has freed you from sin. Believe that he's freed you to live from love instead of from a space where you're living to earn love. You've died. I don't live like I have anything to prove anymore because I don't. As I said, my value was already settled at the cross and I really like all the good things that my father has said about me. Because you don't become what you desire, you become what you believe about yourself. So trust God when he says you're free. Believe that and then walk up, rise up in that confidence and live like that. Live like you believe that Jesus died to give you this freedom and then walk in that freedom. Because today we don't just think about the fact that he died, we also think about the fact that we did too. And we celebrate the fact that he rose and we did too. That's it, y'all. Love y'all.